Hello everyone, my name is John Corvas Mons. I'm the CEO of Wondo Mobility. We are an urban mobility marketplace providing access to multiple modes of transportation, both public and private. And our idea, our approach is to create a completely integrated and unique experience. We are part of Robial, which is a global infrastructure operator. Today, I'm talking with Michael Granoff. He's a founder and managing partner of Manif Mobility, a venture capital fund based in Tel Aviv, which invests exclusively in digital mobility space. Michael, or Mike, also serves on the board of Securing America's Future Energy, a Washington DC-based policy and advocacy organization. And he has been involved in three US presidential campaigns. He's also a good friend of Robial, and he's been involved in many discussions, conferences, and brainstormings we've had about the future of mobility. I would like to thank Manuel Martinez, our head of Open Innovation at Ferrobial, to help making this interview a reality. So, hello, Mike. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, I, I prepared the first question before COVID crisis, but I think it's still... Uh, relevant. How did you go to your office this morning? That's a it's an excellent question. Actually, I I, I um, work in uh, downtown Tel Aviv and live in a suburb um, about uh, 20 kilometers outside. And um, I I have almost never driven to work. Um, I uh, today to answer your question, I biked, but it would be. Uh, uh, misrepresentative for me to um, imply that that's how I usually uh, get to the office. In pre-COVID days, I did it as a novelty every uh, couple of months. And uh, since COVID, I've been doing it uh, roughly once a week um, on my on my non-running day. But um, uh, the main way that I got to, to work pre-COVID was by bus, uh, sometimes by taxi. Um, and, um, you know, I, I have not been using public transit as many people haven't uh, since COVID. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about your story around mobility because I think it's, it's really interesting. I've been seeing like many interviews and, and things that you've been reading, you've been writing um, about mobility. And I know that you decided to work on mobility after 9-11 in 2001 because you were living in Manhattan and you understood that the global oil's monopoly in transportation was a big problem we needed to solve, right? What is your main motivation to work on mobility now? I really kind of made the switch over from a primary interest in policy to a primary interest in innovation after the experience of being involved in what became the 2006 energy bill in Washington, D.C., which had, among many other things, the first electric vehicle incentives in, in, in the world. And um, he, I, I realized after that, that although the bill contained a lot, that um, in fact, uh, as a scientific matter, as a, an investment uh, matter, uh, uh, electrification was really the only scalable um, way to break the monopoly of oil in transportation. Um, I, I had two assumptions uh, at that time. One of them turned out to be correct and one of them turned out to be incorrect. <coughs> one was that the price of batteries and energy storage was going to drop significantly, maybe tenfold in the following decade. That was correct. We went from about $1,000 a kilowatt hour in 2007 
uh, to um, you know a hundred something uh, today, depending on lots of lots of factors. But that that really did happen. Uh, what uh, what I could never have imagined what would happen um, was was I also thought that the price of oil effectively, as long as the economy was growing, the price of oil would only go up because there was a um, effectively a limited supply. Uh, uh, there's a there, there's a phenomenon um, known as Hubbard's Peak, um, which a shell geologist came up with in the 60s, and he correctly predicted that the U.S. oil production would peak in 1971, which it did. Um, and in the late part of the first decade of the century, a lot of people thought, oh, now we can apply that globally and we're going to have peak oil supply and that's going to mean, and, and, the, and the price did start to go hyperbolic uh, in 2008, actually triggered the financial crisis. But um, the um, very interesting thing that happened was through technology, extraction technology, um, called uh, specifically shale, um, the U.S. Uh, production unpeaked in 2011, and it produced more than it had the year before, and then uh, that a few years later even surpassed the production levels in 1971. And so that kind of stabilized the price of oil for the 2010s, which is not something that I saw coming or really anyone saw coming. And I think uh, that's why electric vehicles um, were of only limited penetration over the last decade. Uh, you know, to get back, back to your question, you know, I, I really spent uh, those years from 2006 uh, until uh, the middle part of, of the last decade focused uh, pretty exclusively on electric cars, mostly through the portal of Better Place, the um, startup that mm -hmm. I had, was involved in that was uh, building networks uh, for electric cars and we put a lot of infrastructure, including battery switch stations in Denmark and in Israel. Um, but in, in the last number of years, you know, I've come to understand and it really was the foundation of the fund that the intersection of technology and transportation is a lot broader than just electrification. Electrification, I think, is now accepted uh, by everybody, not, not just for the environmental reasons they talked about, the security reasons I cared about, but just because um, uh, the, the price uh, is what it is. And Tesla, uh, among other things, has really you know, demonstrated um, uh, what, what electric cars can be. And, and, and the public, I think, has begun to embrace them um, still with concerns around infrastructure, range, those uh, price, those sorts of things. But um, policy these days and um, the, um, the pipeline of vehicles these days, I think, uh, makes uh, what I've been saying for 15 years finally going to be right in, in this decade uh, that electric vehicles are inevitable. And obviously, we have a lot of other things uh, um, that, that stem out of that. I, I know that right now in the Manif Fund, in the, in the current Manif Fund, I know you are more focused on consumer, consumer services than infrastructure or, or technology. So trying, I'm trying to understand consumer behavior and try to see uh, how important right now, um, let's say that I'm seeing that there are important changes on younger people like teenagers, that they are thinking very carefully about how their decisions affect community. They can even change their jobs if they think that the company is not socially committed. I think that is is a stronger that that feeling is stronger than before. So I would like to understand what do you think that climate change sustainability is going to be a key purchasing decision? Yeah, so I think there's something to what you're saying. And I think that the younger generation um, is genuinely concerned about climate change and, and such issues. Um, but I also think that the only way that um, we can move the needle on these issues is to present a product 
that is um, price competitive and is practical uh, to use. And if you, you took Rebel as an example, that's our portfolio company that's doing um, shared electric mopeds in the U.S. and is now um, now has uh, over 3,000 um, vehicles in New York City. Um, and uh, you know, interestingly, as with Better Place, it's a battery switchable electric vehicle. It's only that it's two wheels rather than four, and it's shared instead of owned. Um, but you know, if you ask, uh, and, and let's for a moment talk about pre-COVID, why why people are using it? It's um, because it is more more efficient and uh, less expensive than uh, the alternatives, which um, primarily the alternative that most of Rebel's customers were moving from before COVID was, uh, was Uber or taxi cabs, uh, getting from one neighborhood of Brooklyn to another, going two, three, four miles, something that's too far to walk, that there isn't a public transit that, that conveniently goes there. But now you can pick up a moped on the street um, and, 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 and for, for a very inexpensive uh, ride, you can be at your, uh, your destination in a few minutes. Um, you know, I think it's, it's a great example. And, and, and uh, by being able to put out this technology, the electric vehicle and the ability to uh, hail that from your phone uh, and to, to, put, to put it out um, at, a, at, a, at a price that's attractive and it's also fun, I think that's what is really driving consumer adoption. The fact that it's also uh, good for the environment, I think, uh, becomes a bonus. But, you know, in mm -hmm. most cases, I don't think it's kind of the primary uh, motivating factor. Okay, probably the two first motivating facts are first pricing, second is experience. You know that that, that one that we are working right now uh, at Ferrovial, we are working in a, in a marketplace integrating um, many different mobility services. The idea is to, to create a mobility as a service uh, platform and we are integrating car sharing, bike sharing, uh, e-scooters, taxi uh, and also public transportation. And we are moving forward to create a completely integrated experience. So our approach is like if it's not complete, it's not going to happen. So, so that's why I was saying that the experience is really important because what we are seeing here is that if we don't go to a completely integrated and unique experience, it's not going to happen. So, and, and I would like to know also, what do you think about this opportunity, about the marketplaces and how also your companies are approaching this idea of being in, in, in marketplaces? Because I think that for the urban mobility, sustainable urban mobility in a dense cities that there are going to be many different kinds of services, it's probably the solution. Yeah, you know, um, so I mean, what you just described in terms of what you're doing at Wanda, I think, is is uh, emblematic of the new era that we're that we're now in. The way I like to characterize it is that um, in uh, 1908, you could narrow it down to the month September of 1908, uh, the Model T Ford came out, and that changed the trajectory of mobility for a hundred years because uh, it. Um, it was a vehicle that um, middle-class families could afford. And um, as a result, um, tourist population in the U.S. peaked about 10 years after the Model T was introduced and cars became dominant. And specifically, the individually owned and operated internal combustion engine car was the dominant source of mobility to the point that mobility wasn't even a word because that we just basically used cars. And then, you know, occasionally mass transit here or there, things, things like that. Um, but um, what, what happened 100 years later in September 2008, one was, of course, the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers and 
the financial crisis, but and and also the bankruptcy uh, that followed of uh, some of the major car companies. But uh, something else happened in in September of '08 that was less uh, noticed at the time, but more profound in its implication, and that was the introduction of third-party apps on smartphones. And that enabled things like Waze, and then things like Uber, and then things like Bird and Lime, and um, you know, and, 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 and a lot of what, what you're doing at Wanda and a lot of what our portfolio companies are doing like, like Revel. Uh, this is the, uh, the age of, 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 of digital mobility began, I think, in, in 2008. Um, and we're, you know, just over a decade into it. And I think still very early in, in the game. But if, it's, if, if the age of digital mobility is, is to be characterized, uh, in, in a word, I would say it's diversity. And you, you just made that point yourself in talking about all of the modes that, uh, you, that you, you are able to, to enable for, for consumers. And I think, um, you know, uh, if, if, if I'm going, um, you know, um, half a mile uh, to a meeting, it's, it's a different mobility experience than if I am going five miles or 10 miles or 100 miles. And I don't want to use the same means uh, to, mm-hmm. to do that, particularly if I'm in a crowded urban environment and have, have the choices to have uh, these different types of shared electric vehicles and different form factors uh, alongside mass transit integrated with it uh, and so forth, I think is really where, um, where is, is the inevitable trajectory that, that we're on. But I think um, it will be um, highly um, integrated with another related question, which is how, uh, which we, you know, we, can, we can talk about um, how, uh, how cities are going to adjust. To, uh, to new mobility. And, and, and this is, uh, I think, actually the most interesting thing to watch in, in this decade that we've just entered. Um, a lot of people thought it was going to be uh, self-driving cars. We can talk about that too. I think that will happen um, maybe in the latter part of the decade, but in the next few years, I think um, the most interesting thing to watch is <laughs> the changes that, that cities make um, that they were already beginning to make as Kick scooters suddenly showed up in 200 cities around the world, shared bikes. Soon there's going to be a lot more e-bikes around um, and, and, and mopeds and uh, other lightweight vehicles and lightweight delivery vehicles because obviously delivery is, 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 is was exploding before COVID. And uh, that's another aspect to this is that many of these trends that we're talking about now are really accelerated by COVID. The complexity of this space is this contradiction between technology companies investing a lot of money, but on the other side, we have the cities and regulation that, that need to play a key role here, and they are not moving that fast. So in the end, it's a, a connection between these two sides that they need to, to define the, the future of mobility. But, but it's true that it's going to take, it's going to be in this decade, but it's going to take time to, to, to define and to own the vision from the cities because they they still are, are trying to understand their vision about the, the mobility and how they want to, to make mobility like evolve in the following years. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, Mobileye and Moveit, and um, they're, they're both um, Israeli companies, and we're uh, very uh, proud to have both of them here and in, in the ecosystem. Um, and you're right that you know, Mobileye is talking about doing um, a driverless ride hail pilots in the next uh, year or two. Um, and that's great, and I, I hope that they're successful in, in doing that. You know, Waymo has been doing that already uh, for a while in, in Arizona, and, and, and Cruz, um, they haven't offered uh, rides in public yet, uh, but they're, they've been operating in, in, in San Francisco. 
Um, and, you know, I think these programs will continue to develop, but um, there are uh, such a, a, an assortment of challenges um, on not just technology, but on, um, you know, consumer uh, adoption, which um, here is interwoven with, with safety concerns, with, uh, with all sorts of other complex issues. And I really think that um, it's going to take time before um, sort of the robotic taxi vision, the Uber without the driver um, is actually mainstream in uh, urban um, uh, centers around the world. And, and the most important thing I think is not just that that's gonna take time, but that things will not remain static during that time. And so if we were ready to usher in this um, robotic taxi vision today, I think it'd be very different than it will be uh, when, when that day actually arrives five, six, seven years um, from now, um, because, you know, like I said, I think it's in these next several years that cities are going to start to make some of these changes reacting to, to, to both the technologies and to the um, business models and the, and, and the consumer preferences that are demonstrated uh, in, in this period. Hmm. You, talk about, you talked about uh, robo-taxis and different business models, but what are, in your opinion, the business models and services that will enable autonomous driving uh, technology? So you have to, because there are many options there that, that can be, that can happen at the same time, but. Yeah, so I think you have to think about it really in three different um, perspectives. So um, one, I mean, we talked about uh, the, the, the fact that uh, delivery and logistics is going to be um, evolving very rapidly uh, alongside uh, uh, individual mobility. Um, you know, for all the reasons that we're aware of, all the trends that were already in place before COVID and have been accelerated by it. So, you know, will we see um, driverless trucks on the highways before we see cars? I think this is a very good possibility that we will. Um, you know, then, uh, you know, I think you, you, th you think about um, uh, autonomous technology as it um, improves safety and convenience for um, drivers in, you know, inner city, highway type settings. And we're already seeing that, and we'll see more of that. And it's actually a, a, a much less difficult problem um, in, in, a, in a highway setting. You know, where, where, you, where you get the complexity and where I think we're, we're gonna have to wait uh, it, 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 to have uh, the robotic taxi uh, services that, that, that have, been, have been talked about is, uh, you know, in, in the crowded urban centers. Um, and, and that's where really the demand is for these, for these shorter trips. Um, and, you know, right now, um, that, that demand, um, you know, uh, it, it's only, it's, it's hard to believe it's only been, you know, about a decade um, since Uber became uh, mainstream. Um, and, and that was um, uh, obviously disruptive to, um, to the taxi businesses in, in, in the cities that they entered, as well as to, um, you know, consumer habits uh, in, in, in urban mobility. And, and now, you know, we, we've, we're seeing the early days of, of micromobility. And, um, and, and so question is, uh, robotic taxis, what role do they have uh, in, in, in that in this in this environment, I think they, they will have a role, but like I said, I think that's also going to take um, some number of years still. In your opinion, which trends are going to be accelerated to it due to COVID nineteen impact, and what are going to be the downturns? So 
My current thinking, obviously, this is a really dynamic situation, and um, it's been such a strange few months in which, you know, every time you're sure of something, the next day there's complete contradictory information. So, but um, what, what, the way I'm thinking about it now is that there are effectively going to be two, two waves. Um, and the first wave has already begun uh, while we're still in the midst of COVID and in the 6, 12, 18 months um, following it, which, you know, please God will be soon. And in that period of time, I think uh, it's inevitable that uh, mass transit is going to suffer. Um, and any, you know, any businesses, uh, mobility or otherwise, that require, um, you know, people close together, it's just going to be really hard. Um, you know, uh, even, um, even if uh, cities are, are open, um, you know, people are going to be uh, nervous. And, and, and so in that environment, uh, we're actually already seeing an uptick in um, people buying cars. And, you know, this is something that is completely contrary to what I, my expectations were before COVID. Um, I, I think it's very temporary. Uh, interestingly enough, we have a company in our portfolio that's based in Madrid um, called BP that does car subscriptions. And they've seen a big uptick um, in, in the, since the lockdown has been lifted in Spain um, because um, you know, they actually offer very flexible options for uh, uh, having a car. You can uh, subscribe to a car for, for a month or for six months or for a year. And you know, so I think that's going to be one of the trends we see. Also in this period, um, I think we're going to see increasing adoption of um, micromobility. Um, Revel uh, that I've talked about, especially in New York, you know, it has seen a tremendous surge in demand uh, since New York has begun to come out of lockdown because the strange phenomenon at the moment is that it is true to say that uh, getting around Manhattan on a moped is safer than on the subway. Um, now, that, that won't be true. Um, it, I hope it won't be true um, in, in, in a very short period of time. But these, contrary to the, to the cars, which I think the uptick in car, uh, individual car usage is a temporary phenomenon. That's a, a function of COVID. Um, micromobility, I think what we're going to see longer term, you know, whether it's the scooters or, 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 or the mopeds like Rebel has or e-bikes, which is another category that really has begun to uh, come into its own um, just recently, uh, that all of those are um, consumers um, may first use them as a function of COVID, but I think um, they'll be hooked. And I think that uh, they will be a primary means of mobility for many, many people long after COVID has passed. And so uh, I think, um, you know, that's, that's, that's how it's going to play out. But like I said, um, things are changing so quickly. Who knows? Mm. Ah, and it's the easiest way now to, to move in an individual vehicle. So it's the easiest, the cheapest. So probably I think there is going to be an important trend uh, now that is going to accelerate this process. It's, to, it's true that probably in, in some months it's going to be a little back, but we are seeing this in every city, in every big city that that bikes are are going are growing uh, like crazy. So they are almost hundred and fifty percent from pre pre COVID. So so it's a it's a huge growth. So so I think that we are going to see many many interesting things there happening. Also important is to understand the the cities how the cities are going to evolve in terms of I mean urbanization. So that that people this trend that all people is it's going to live in the city center is there are going to be very dense cities and and this is let's say 
our main hypothesis in terms of urban mobility. So I don't know if, if you believe that this is going to be changed, that this trend can change and people start uh, going to live in, in like a hundred kilometers from the city or, or do you think that, that this is just a temporary thing that is happening now? That's a really good question and I've seen lots of uh, strong opinions in both directions on that. My own thinking is that, um, you know, what we've seen uh, in the first 20 years of this century uh, in terms of urbanization is truly breathtaking, meaning that um, we all know the situation in China and how quickly uh, China's urbanized also lots, lots more places uh, in Asia. That's been the case in Europe. Um, in, in the U.S., you know, big cities like New York have, have grown significantly. And we even see it here in Israel where, you know, the government actually as a policy tried to entice people to move to um, the, the northern part, the southern part of what is a pretty small country. Um, and yet, um, uh, no, no matter how, uh, how much they didn't build in the center and uh, let the prices of housing uh, increase, it didn't matter, people didn't move. Um, the, the urge to um, live more densely seems to be universal at this point in history. It's interesting because you might have thought that in a digital age, it would be the opposite. Uh, we're able to have this conversation from thousands of miles apart. And, you know, maybe we, we, you know, people don't need to live so densely, but in fact, people have chosen to live more densely. And I am in the camp that says that that is a long-term trend that is going to hold and it's not going to change. Uh, although it's definitely the case that, you know, right at this moment, everyone who I know in New York City and I get on a Zoom, where are they? You know, they're in a suburb or they're with their parents in Kentucky or they're somewhere else outside the city. And, you know, some of them say, I'm not sure I'm going to go back. I'm not sure I want to live in the city anymore. I don't think that will sustain itself. I think um, we'll see, um, you know, urbanization continue and the, the desire for more mobility options continue. The other thing related to what you said earlier is um, uh, putting aside for, uh, an issue, for a minute the, the issue of, of, of carbon or environment, um, I think um, many people, many cities around the world in the last few months have gotten a little bit of a taste of what uh, we in Israel, Israel have had a taste of once a year for a long time, which is, that, uh, which is uh, the idea of clean air. Um, there's an interesting phenomenon that in Israel uh, on Yom Kippur, uh, there are no cars. Literally no one drives in the whole country for 25 hours. And it is noticeable. There have been studies done in, 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 on the air quality, and you see what the air is like, taking the tailpipes away for one day. And because of the lockdown, so many cities around the world, you know, people stepped outside and said, wow, you know, this is, this is, this is great. The sky is blue and the, the air smells fresh. And uh, I think that's going to be something also that is going to sustain a post-crisis. People know more than that, which is why I think as we've talked about, um, we're going to see these policy changes in cities, um, not just around tailpipe vehicles, but um, you know, around creating more uh, space for, for, for pedestrians, for micromobility vehicles, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go, let's go to, the, to the final question. Uh, I really appreciate your sharing your time and all the thoughts and ideas about urban mobility, because I think it was, it was very interesting. But... I, I would like to close out with a final question about people and teams that I think it's it's uh, an important thing also and now that you are the managing partner of a worldwide known VC fund and I believe that in, in this side of the table the most important part is to choose the right founders, the right teams and 
I don't know if you know you know the Tim Ferriss show. This podcast, it's a podcast from the US. It's a very interesting podcast, and the, there was an interview to Chris Saka, which is one of the most important business angels in Silicon Valley, and it was asking him um, about all the successful entrepreneurs that that he 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 met, uh, and and see if there is a, a skill that all of them share. So, because all the entrepreneurs, they are all different. They are they have different skills. But if there is a skill that they share between them in the successful entrepreneurs, and I don't know if if you have an opinion about this. Do you think that there is a skill that is important in in successful entrepreneurs? I I don't know that I could uh, identify a single one uh, aside from the trite things that one could say. But you know. Uh, maybe one bordering on trite, but I think it's absolutely um, essential is, you know, a determination and really a, a desire um, to, to, solve, uh, to solve a problem, and to, to, to be in love, as they say, you know, with the problem and not, not the solution, because the solution um, is malleable depending on the circumstance and depending on how things change in, in this very dynamic world, and particularly this dynamic time that we're living in. Uh, for me, you know, when, when we're uh, evaluating companies, um, we're, we're different than, than most investors because we're so uh, focused uh, singularly in this sector. And that's why we try to uh, understand it as best we can uh, so that we can make the best decisions and we can be the biggest help that we can be to our, to our portfolio companies. But, you know, when, when, when we're um, evaluating uh, companies, you know, certainly um, aside from the, the obvious uh, technology market business model type questions, um, you know, the top of mind for me is, you know, are these, are these folks that um, I can be comfortable working with? There are situations where there are people who uh, I'm not comfortable working with who have great ideas and great technology and go on actually to great success and that's fine. And, uh, and, and, and uh, there are others who, who would who'd go ahead and back people who, with whom they're not comfortable working with. And that's fine too, um, but you know my uh, my view is that that, that life's too short, and, and uh, I only want to be uh, working with uh, with folks who, who I can really um, get along with, and, and more than that, you know, um, have a, a give and take that leads us to uh, constructive and insightful places that uh, helps helps them succeed, and and therefore helps helps us succeed as well. So um, that's really um, sort of the. The key things, um, and uh, I can tell you that you know, in spite of everything, and in spite of the uh, the, the, the global uh, crisis that we're in, we still see every day amazing ideas coming from all over the world, uh, from really determined and creative entrepreneurs, and that's why it's you know privileged to be able to to be in this line of work. Thanks again for sharing your ideas, Mike, and I hope that all your portfolio companies are going to be really successful and, and the money fund is going to be like doing and defining the future of mobility. So thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, really a fun conversation and I have a lot of admiration for the work that you're doing uh, specifically and also uh, for Ovial, uh in, in general, which, you know, I, I, I think it's, um, it's tremendous the, uh, the direction uh, that, that Ferrovial is, is going to embrace uh, the 21st century mobility and look forward to working with all of you uh, in the years to come.